Amen. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bible, if you brought one, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Tonight in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've arrived at another passage about food. Now, this happened to us last month as well. The very night we're having dinner, uh, <clears throat> we come across one of these texts that tells us how to glorify God with our mouths and bellies. Um, Dinner tonight, by the way, not sacrificed to idols, we hope. Of course, you brought it. At least if it was, I should say, according to chapter 10, we'll get there. Just don't tell us about it and we can still eat it. Uh, but that's not in tonight's text. We're in chapter 8. Now, how do we get to chapter 8? Through chapter 6, where Paul says, and we're to glorify God with our bodies. And he begins to talk about, now questions they've asked, but, but the things of the body. So chapter 7 was all about marital intimacy uh, or, or immorality. Uh, and now at chapter 8, he begins to speak about eating. We, one of the ways we glorify God with our bodies. Now I have much more to say about that uh, than may seem immediately obvious as we read the text. I realize... We don't have temples on every corner where the meat is being sacrificed and offered to you and you have a great ethical dilemma ahead of you. But there are, there are some timeless principles and applications I do want us to dig into. There's much here about Christian knowledge and neighbor love as well as love for God. So uh, we want to get to chapter 8 in just a moment, but I do want to relate a story I read. I don't know the original source for it. But a young man asked a minister, what must I forsake to follow Jesus? And the answer given, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work. Now, how does that sound to you? Does it sound absurd? It's the answer I'm told by a number of sources given in one of the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. This is what you must do to genuinely follow Jesus. Now, not every Christian in the second century believed that, you understand. But it does raise for us that question. What does it mean to follow Jesus in a community of other believers, especially with regard to the stuff of the body and the stuff of life? So let's consider that then as we hear Paul speak to the Corinthians in chapter 8, let me invite you to consider the authoritative word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence 
and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, we... Praise you that you are on the throne of the universe, that you rule and reign over all things, that all things are in your hand from you and through you and to you are all things. We pray you'd write that on our hearts tonight and we pray that you would cause us to love as we have been loved by Jesus. So teach us your word, help us to walk in its way, help us to think about it correctly, keep my lips from error and help the meditations of all of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Corinthians have asked Paul a question about food, very natural question for them, meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, that's not a question this pastor has ever actually been asked by anybody. What do I do? Well, so what is this about? Well, in those days, the place to get a really great steak wasn't at you know, the corner grocery store or some fancy, you know, swanky restaurant. The place to get a really great meal of meat was in a religious temple. Why? Well, because that's where people in Corinth worshipped all kinds of gods, Zeus, Aphrodite, Apollos, your Parthenon of deities. And one of the ways you worshipped was that you brought an animal for sacrifice. And that animal was offered to the deity and then killed and divided. And some of it was burned up on the altar to the deity. Some of it was given the priest for his daily ration of food. He might take extra and sell it on the meat market. And some of it was given to you to eat in the temple. You might host a family meal or a reunion or a party. And so if you lived in Corinth, you might get invitations to dinner parties. I'd like you to join me at Zeus temple at six on Tuesday for dinner. Can you join me? 
It was the thing to do. It's what everybody did if they had means. It would have been considered odd and unsociable in that day not to take part in these things. So if you looked on a typical well-to-do family calendar, back in those days it might, I take great liberties, it might say, Tuesday, you know, go to the Temple of Aphrodite with Bob and Jane and have a family sacrifice and eat dinner afterwards. Friday, a big festival at Shrine of Neptune. Everyone will be there. Stop by Apollo's Temple Market later. Two for one sale on the lamb chops. Obviously, uh, obviously, I, I take your eight liberties here. But it was just part of the warp and woof of life. It was where social events took place, big parties, big festivals. If you were a businessman, you'd probably feel obligated to attend these events. I mean, this is where you connected and networked and cultivated contacts, where you, your business uh, dined and wined clients. Well, knowing all that, you were going to be there, knowing that you would be invited to this, what would happen? They were going to offer meat to Zeus or what have you. Would you eat it? You're a Christian, and you know Zeus isn't a real god. And you don't want anyone thinking you think he's real or that you're worshiping him. What do you do? Some said, eat. (laughs) It's steak. You know, Zeus isn't real. This meat is from the true God. You know, give thanks to Jesus and chow down past the A1. What difference does it make if I eat this when it's been offered to a non-existent deity? What difference does it make? The deity doesn't exist. But others said, don't eat. Don't eat. They, these would have been worried that in eating they might offend Jesus. Maybe all their life they ate meat sacrificed to Zeus. And now that they're Christians, they can't, they can't help still being pulled into thinking that somehow they're honoring Zeus. So Paul has to counsel them through this pastoral difficulty. And I want to highlight Three truths that he says to them, which I think are very applicable to us in our own day as well. Let me outline them for you, and then we'll walk through the text. In the first place, verses 1 to 3, he highlights the danger of knowledge, knowledge alone. It's almost a digression. Then in verses 4 to 6, he highlights the blessing of knowledge, of of true knowledge, the freedom it brings. But then in verses 7 to 13, he tells Christians how to make right use of that knowledge out of love for others. So those three things, let's walk through verses 1 to 3. He begins here with this language. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, quote. This may have been their phrase to him. Paul is reiterating it and answering the question. Paul begins here with this. We're all clued in. You know, idols aren't real. Don't we all know that? And Paul says to them, you know what your knowledge about that does? It puffs you up. It makes you arrogant. You eat meat, he says to them, offered to idols like it's no big deal, and you're thinking about your belly instead of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your knowledge helps you serve yourself a second helping, sure, While your behavior, he says, is enticing your brothers and sisters into sin. And love, he says, doesn't do that. Love builds up. 
Love helps others. And so he says, you've been misusing the knowledge that you have. And, and we're all tempted to that, right? One of the first things parents have to do once their kids start really talking uh, is uh, if there's a sibling in the home, the issue of tattletaling comes up, right? Because five-year-old Sally sees six-year-old Johnny disobeying mom. Sally doesn't come to mom to rat out Johnny out of love for Johnny. Oh, no. But out of of a desire to get Johnny in trouble with mom. Sally's got information, right information. But she isn't using it properly. Don't be a tattletale, mom might say to her. Not wanting to cultivate that spirit in her. In Corinth and among many Christians since that day, We see how easily we can be mean and unloving and bitter towards one another. And often this kind of selfish disregard for others and their opinions stems from our sense that we know more than they do. So Paul rebukes them. Knowledge is not the issue, he says to them, but love is. You're not being loving. And then he humbles them, verse 2. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. So first he rebukes and then he humbles. They think they've sort of come to the end of the subject, right? They've really arrived at the final explanation and they've got all the truth they need and they know it. That's what they're saying. I know a married woman married to an intellectual Christian. He's written dozens and dozens of books. He's really, really smart. She seemed really proud one day over dinner to describe him as, quote, a man who can't suffer fools gladly. I think it was the first time I'd ever heard that expression. But, you know, she was saying... He just couldn't stand to be patient with the ignorant. He couldn't put up with people who are unwise and unknowing. And he felt like, you know, sometimes they just need to be told this. And I want to ask this question, but how proud do you have to be to look down on people who don't know quite as much as you when you're the finite and fallen Creature of a creator who knows absolutely everything exactly as it is. You're vastly more distant from him than your neighbor is from you. How foolish to be proud of what you know. And yet that is exactly how often we feel towards others, right? We say to ourselves, why don't they get it? Why don't they just stop talking? Because they clearly don't know what they're talking about. I treat myself with the judgment of charity, and I treat others with the judgment of severity. I give myself breaks all day long, and I pounce when I see faults in others or ignorance in others. How proud, Paul says. And Paul says, if you think You know all that you should, you don't, verse 2. And you don't really know anything as you should. In fact, he goes on to say, our knowledge is not the most important thing. It it, it seems strange for him then to throw in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. What's he saying there? Well, you might have expected him to say, 
If anyone loves God, he has real knowledge. He knows God. Instead, he says, if you love God, God knows you. What's, what's he saying there? What's he talking about? Why is it important to bring up love for God here? Why does he say that? Well, love for God demonstrates that you know God. Knowledge doesn't. You can know a lot of true things about God and never know God personally. I can tell you a lot about my friend Nathan. If you've never met him or spent time with him, you don't know him. You might think you do, but I can tell you he's a minister, he's married, he has a bunch of children, he loves to go hunting. He and I have tag names like Dirt Diver and Snake Doc from, some of you know the TV show from which those come, won't bore you with the details. But you don't know, a th- you don't know Nathan at all, because I described a few things about him, Right? And you don't love Nathan, though you now have some knowledge about him. Well, this is what Paul is driving at, I think. So Paul says the one who loves, who loves the family of Christ because he loves Christ, it shows that this person is known by God. You thought he was going to say they know God, and of course they do in some sense, but of course what really matters is that they are known by God. That he is personally and relationally acquainted with you. He has befriended you. He has brought you into a loving relationship with himself. And intellectual knowledge making you feel proud and superior. Right, sound, correct theology. As great as important as it is. Making you look down your nose at people who are stupid or theologically ignorant. These are the things Paul's driving at, saying, this is not what Christianity is, but being known by God, that, he says, that humbles us. Why should he care about me? Why should the Lord of the universe have befriended me? And he loved me. And he did. How amazing. That knowledge, Paul says, actually makes us loving, which is what he's trying to get at. You're known by God. It produces love. And so there's the first thing is the danger. The danger of having only knowledge and not loving. Because if you only have knowledge and you're not loving Christ and his people, you're you're not acting like a Christian. And you may very well not be one. That's the first. The second is this, verses four to six. He gets on then to the original question. Notice verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, he kind of has to get back on track. He digressed. Now he's going to talk about the blessing of true knowledge. He's going to talk about how it sets us free. He agrees with them, that's where he begins, about what we know. We know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. And we know that there is no God but one God. People bow to idols, sacrifice foods to idols, and all the while... The so-called God behind the idol doesn't actually exist. We know that, Paul says. And knowing that truth brings freedom. Knowing truth does. Knowing a car without brakes isn't safe is life-saving if you use that knowledge. Knowing 
how to swim removes fear and enables you, you, enables you to enjoy swimming. And knowing that all foods are permissible brings freedom. It keeps you from becoming a slave to other people's diets. It keeps you from fearing eating certain, eating certain kinds of foods. Yes, we might say the Bible says, you know, gluttony is forbidden. But if you want hot dogs or pizza or ice cream or coffee, go for it. You need to be wise, of course, about you know, how much you eat for the sake of your health and well-being. You have no argument with Paul there. Everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial, chapter 6. But all food is permissible. It's all okay, and we know that because we know the truth. The truth is it's all a gift from one God, and he gave it to us. Now, there are these pretend gods, he says, but for us, we know that there's but one Father, and everything is from him and, and for him, and there is one Lord Jesus, and everything is through him. He's the agent of creation, and And we exist through him. And the Father and the Son are in complete unity and harmony in the joy of the Trinitarian love, which is God. There isn't, he's saying, in part, there isn't one God, you know, who blesses our work and one God who blesses us with fertility and another God who blesses our marriage and another God who keeps us safe. And we need to run around town to all the different Temples, being sure we bow low to all the different deities to get them on our side. No, we know that there's just one. Everything's from him and for him and through him and ours in Christ. And he has made, we know, all things good. We shouldn't speak of his created things as evil. Fallen people, Jesus does describe us that way. But steak and ale? No. But this is, in fact, what happens in the Christian community time and again, right? It was happening in the time of the Apostle Paul. If you go to the end of his ministry, in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he has to write this to to the church and to Timothy. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says it's the doctrine or teaching of demons to forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain kinds of foods. Now, what's the logic behind that idea? Well, the logic is this. This is why people embrace it. You know, if you get married, you'll enjoy the marriage bed, and we can't have any of that. You know, if, uh, if you eat certain foods, you might enjoy them. Don't do that. Taste not. Touch not, people said. It's the view, in other words, that the pleasures of the body and the created thing are inherently bad. And that to deny them is the way to be closer to God. And to indulge them is to put you farther from God. But Paul here says that the righteous use of the good things of life is good. I know a man 
Christian man who had his non-Christian neighbor, maybe I've told you this story before, he had his non-Christian neighbor over for dinner. And at the time of the serving of the meal, as the food was brought out and the wine was poured, the Christian offered a toast to the creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he prayed and gave thanks for the meal. He thanked God for the good gifts which are to be enjoyed. As Paul goes on to say, for every created, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So he, he prays, he doesn't pray the words of Paul, you understand. But, and, and the non-Christian dinner guest is absolutely blown over by that. He'd never heard a Christian speak positively about wine, he said, in his life. And it suddenly got him thinking. And he began to reconsider Christianity. And obviously there was much more to it than that, but he eventually came to believe in the Christ of Christianity, who's the author of all good gifts. Paul will go on in Romans chapter 14, verse 16, say this, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And you say to me, but what about class four narcotics? Okay, not if you said that, but I've thought about this, haven't you? What do we say? I think we should say they're good. When you've fallen off your roof and you're in agony and you're in the hospital, a physician can give you class four narcotics, I think. I'm no medical man. Of that kind of strength and potential addictiveness even. But to relieve your sudden agony. And that, we should say, is a good thing. Now, that physician has a responsibility to make sure you don't get addicted. That it's all under ter- you know, incredible controls, of course. It can be used wrongly, no doubt. Those things destroy people's lives. We can say with certainty. But to take away pain? Praise God, Right? We can give thanks. Rightly used. We can give thanks. And so Paul affirms the freedom Christians have to eat. Not class 4 narcotics. But even food sacrificed to idols. He's affirming their position in principle. You are free, dear Christians, to enjoy. Enjoy, I might add as a pastor, if you want to. Wine or cigars or dancing. I'm sorry, parents. I know that just threw you for a loop. Wine or cigars or dancing or games or cane sugar. (laughs) Some of you. If God hasn't forbidden it, it's not forbidden. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat. And no better off if we do. Now he means in your relationship to the Lord. Not in the size of you know, the belly you're carrying. You might be worse off. But this is freedom. Paul says this is blessing. God alone then is the Lord of the conscience over you. If his word forbids it, it's forbidden. Jesus said that you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. He is affirming these things, so enjoy the blessings. But, we say, verses 7 to 13, but. Paul has a big pause for you in your thinking about all this. With this qualification, you do it 
You enjoy it. You enjoy it, he says, and love God and love others as you do. Christians, he says, verses 7 to 13, do not have the right to use their freedom when it might lead others to sin. Notice the language of verses 7 to 13, where he calls them to restrain themselves even from enjoying the freedoms given out of love for others. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. The knowledge that these are God's good gifts and you're welcome to them. Not every Christian, he says, gets it. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Here's what he's saying. There are a large number of people in Corinth whose hearts had apparently not caught up to their heads. They might theoretically understand that the idols aren't real, but because so many of them had worshipped these idols for so long, They didn't yet grasp the truth at an experiential level. And so some of them hadn't quite made the shift fully in head and heart from polytheism to monotheism and the way that you live in light of that truth. And you can tell, as a pastor friend of mine illustrates, you can tell a four-year-old child that there's no such thing as the boogeyman. But if at any point in, your, in their life they have believed in the existence of such a thing, then no amount of rational explanation, no amount of turning on the lights and walking around in the closet to look behind every dress and shirt and pair of pants, none of these things will dispel the sneaking suspicion that somehow when the lights are off and the parents are gone, the thing that isn't real and couldn't be there, could suddenly appear. The child has not yet come to know on an experiential heart level what his head and what his parents have told him is true. I think that captures exactly what Paul is saying here. There were any number of these idol worshipers. It was just too fresh, too real for them. They didn't believe it anymore, but to go in there, It, it, Paul says, it would destroy them. So he says these folks have a weak conscience. Now he doesn't use the word strong, but he's saying, of course, those who understand their freedom have a strong conscience by contrast. A weak conscience, as he describes it here, is the one uh, who thinks that some things are sin that God has not called sin. It thinks something is wrong when it isn't actually wrong. And it has a conscience about it. And Paul says that's actually a weak conscience. And a strong conscience is convinced we're free to eat or not to eat. A strong conscience knows that food doesn't commend us to God. That's the opposite way I think we think about a strong and a weak conscience. We tend to think a person with a strong conscience objects to many things. They're really sensitive to everything. Seeing them all as sin. But Paul says that's actually a weak conscience. And their conscience is actually misinformed. And therefore misdirecting, misguiding. And so there's a weakness to it. It needs to be robustly strengthened with truth. Truth sets you free. But those, he says, who have a strong conscience are called to love those who have a weak conscience. Not the other way around in this text. 
Take care, verse 9, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he illustrates, if one of you, or if anyone else, you know, a, a weaker brother sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Paul says, you're using your freedom without thinking of its effect on others and how it could be destructive to them, how it can injure them. And so their conscience is defiled if they walk along with you into that. And then they feel guilty. And then we might add they actually are guilty because anything that's not a faith is sin. God may not have forbidden it, but it's sin to you if you think it's sin, is the language of Romans. And by way of application, we might say this, what isn't a temptation for you may be a strong strong temptation for them. And so because we're all different, we need to be sensitive to one another. And about the temptations others have and the limits they put on themselves so that they don't fall into sin by emulating us. That which isn't sin becomes sin for you if you have a strong conscience. If by doing it you encourage others to follow you in it in such a way that they sin. Your sin against them, Paul says, is therefore a sin also against Christ. In other words, you you just, you failed to love them. You failed to love them the way that you ought to have. And so he concludes verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I become a stumbling block to them. So let me close with four points of application. Some of its re-emphasis. Four things. Number one, the strong must care for the weak. That's what Paul says. At a leadership conference on Friday, I heard the story of chow time in the Marines. When it's time to eat, the man said. The highest officers eat last and the lowest soldiers eat first, or Marines eat first. Those with the most power, authority, rank don't demand to be first, to be served, to be waited on, or waited on by those who are behind them. Though there is no rule written down, he said, no command given, Everybody follows the practice. Those who rank lower go first. Those who are least eat first. Those who command take care of those who are commanded. The powerful take care of the powerless. The strong serve the weak. That is a kingdom of Jesus principle. Jesus did that for you. Exercised all his might and he left all the prerogatives of deity in glory in heaven. To become a slave nailed to a cross for you. And mature Christians, Paul is saying, will limit their own freedom out of love for others. And they won't be resentful doing it precisely because they love others. They're looking out for the welfare of others. Now we need to grow in maturity, don't we? Second thing. Our nearby casino raises an occasion to think about these things, I think. Some Christians see all gambling as evil. Others think losing your paycheck at gambling is evil. But playing a few quarters for fun is no different than entertaining yourself at a movie or miniature golf. 
Some Christians know there are objectionable activities and immoral activities that pop up around casinos. So they object even to entering such a facility. Other Christians think it's fine to go in and eat at the buffet. The steaks are cheaper there. I don't know this. We should be careful that we don't judge one another. But we should especially be sensitive to the conscience of the weak so we don't take clients to the casino for dinner, at least without a discussion prior. Because a man who can't say no to losing his paycheck at a casino should go into that place. So we have to be careful. We don't stir up sin for others. That has application in many ways. Thirdly, those of us who find ourselves in a denomination that has a strong teaching tradition, which is great, we especially need to pay attention to Paul's words here. As important as truth and knowledge is, and these things are incredibly significant, they are, however, meaningless if we don't actually love people. And if they don't lead us to loving action, it's something I I think we all need to grow in, of course. And then finally and fourth, it's not enough for us to ask, what does the Bible say about this issue? And then feel that because we've considered the issue and looked at all the biblical material about it, we've now, you know, kind of arrived at the end of our conclusion about what we need to do or what we need to know in order to respond to the situation. That's simply not enough. We must not only ask what you can know about a certain issue, but we must also ask what would love do in response to this issue? What would a loving application of this knowledge mean in my relationship with others? Is my response in this situation going to build this person up? Is it going to seek the good of the body? Is it going to simply stroke my ego, protect my rights, promote my interests? And so I say to all of us, look up to Jesus on his throne, descended to hell on a cross for you. Look back to that cross and then look forward to heaven and then look around at one another and listen with all your heart to your Lord and Savior who says, love as you have been loved. Let's pray. Our Father, you know how poorly many of us have thought about this subject or certainly the way that we've related to others at various times. Um, With a failure to love, and we would confess that to you, acknowledge our transgression, ask that you might make us more like Jesus. Truly help us to love as we have been loved. In his name I pray. Amen.